Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Morley, Assistant Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law. We will discuss his article, Disaggregating Nationwide Injunctions. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I really enjoyed reading your paper, which is super timely for reasons we'll get into get into shortly. But for listeners who might not be so familiar with civil procedure and with remedies and how they work together, I was wondering if you could start by just saying a little something about what an injunction is and when courts uh, use them. Sure. So an injunction is basically just a fancy word for court order. It is a directive from the court telling usually a party to a case, though there are some instances where uh, certain third parties are are bound by them. But it's, it's a court order basically telling a party to a case, you must do something or you are prohibited from doing something. And so in the context of constitutional law, when courts determine that a statute is unconstitutional, or uh, in the context of administrative law, if, if the court determines that a regulation is invalid, it will often issue an injunction restricting the government from enforcing the uh, from enforcing that challenge legal provision. And one of the big questions, and you know, one of the questions at the at the heart of my article is, what is the proper scope of an order like that. If a court determines that there is some sort of legal or constitutional defect in a statute or a regulation, does the court get to completely prohibit the government defendants from enforcing that legal provision against anyone anywhere? Or instead, is it required to enforce only the rights of the plaintiffs in that case, meaning it has to tell the government, you're not allowed to enforce this legal provision against these particular plaintiffs, but otherwise you are allowed to, to, to continue enforcing it against third parties, against people who aren't in front of the court, who aren't involved in this case. And the, one of the distinguishing features about an injunction is that it's backed by the, what's called the contempt power. So if, if someone who is subject to an injunction violates these restrictions, if the court tells the, the, the defendant you're not allowed to do this act and the defendant does it, or it requires the defendant take an act and the defendant ignores the order, the court can hold the defendant in contempt. It can issue coercive contempt, which is an extreme case in which the court is simply issues daily fines or in some cases potentially even incarcerates the defendant until the defendant does what is necessary to come into compliance with the order. Or there can be criminal contempt where the government or the court simply punishes the defendant for, for violating the order. So the, the type of contempt depends on what the court's goal is. Is the court looking to compensate the plaintiff for the violation of the order? Is it looking to try to coerce or compel the defendant to obey the order? Is it looking to punish the defendant for violating the order? So it's precisely because of the of this contempt power. It's because of the flexibility. It's because of the, the discretion the court has with regard to the contempt power that injunctions are such a powerful and important remedy and have become a, a cornerstone of modern constitutional law right out out in the real world right so so normally when a plaintiff wins a case they'll get 
they'll get damages, right? They'll get compensated for whatever happened to them or some other form of monetary relief. When is it that courts use this kind of powerful um, remedy of an injunction? And is it the same for private parties and for the government? So formally, the the Supreme Court has list has identified the elements for injunctive relief, the showings that a plaintiff has to make, the things a plaintiff has to prove in order to to qualify for an injunction. So you're absolutely right. In general, winning a case just isn't enough, or you know, showing that your rights have been violated or will be violated isn't enough. Plaintiffs then have to make additional showings, and and in particular. The, the Supreme Court has held under federal standards to qualify for an injunction, you have to show that you face a likelihood of imminent irreparable injury, that you're going to suffer some sort of harm that can't be fixed after the fact. And so the court has to issue an injunction ahead of time to try to prevent that harm from occurring. The court has held you have to show that you lack an adequate remedy at law. So you have to show that simply suing someone for monetary damages isn't enough to protect your rights. You have to show that the balance of hardships tips in your favor, which means you have to show that the benefits to giving you an injunction outweigh the harms that the, that the defendant will suffer or the costs that will be inflicted on the defendant uh, from issuing the injunction. And then you have to show that it's in the public interest. So it's this four-pronged test, irreparable harm, inadequate remedy at law, balance of hardships, public interest. If a plaintiff satisfies these four factors, then, then an injunction is appropriate. In constitutional cases, most of these factors tend to get short-circuited because courts will often say, a, a violation of your constitutional rights is per se irreparable injury, that we basically just as a matter of law assume that if your constitutional rights are being violated, monetary damages can't suffice for that. You, you don't have uh, an adequate remedy at law, that it's never in the public interest to let the government violate constitutional rights, that the government itself doesn't even have an interest in violating the Constitution. And so the balance of hardships tilts in your favor. So whereas traditional principles of equity really tend to require careful case-by-case -case examination, a balancing of the particularized circumstances of each case, modern constitutional remedies have tended toward per se approaches to these issues where when sometimes courts might even skip the elements altogether. But even when courts do consider the factors for injunctive relief, it finds they're almost always as a matter of law satisfied in the in, in these constitutional cases. Okay, so in in your paper, you talk about nationwide injunctions. W what is a nationwide injunction? And and how is it different from the regular kind? Is this something new or is it something that's been around for a long time? So part, part of, the, part of the, the main thesis of the paper is trying to push back against this unfortunate language of, of using the term nationwide injunctions, which is obviously one of the, one of the main terms that, that is in public use. The term nationwide injunction puts the focus on geographic applicability, right? Like nationwide, we're, we're, we're thinking that the issue is that the injunction geographically applies across the entire nation. But as a matter of fact, it is totally unconventional to say that a court order can apply on a nationwide basis, that a court may restrict a defendant's conduct wherever the defendant chooses to engage in that conduct. The real heart of the modern controversy and and, and 
the real issue that, that, that sparked this paper isn't so much the geographic scope of these injunctions or the geographic breadth of these injunctions, but rather whose rights is the court enforcing? Traditional principles of equity provide that a court traditionally is permitted to grant relief to the plaintiffs before it. So it is required to craft injunctive relief in order to protect the rights of the particular plaintiffs in a case. Most of the time when we talk about nationwide injunctions and when courts are debating the issue of nationwide injunctions, the issue is, in addition to protecting the particular plaintiffs in this case, should the court go further and say, I'm striking down this law, I'm striking down this regulation, therefore, I'm not only going to prevent the government or enjoin the government from enforcing this law or regulation against this particular plaintiff, but I'm issuing a quote-unquote nationwide injunction completely prohibiting the government from enforcing this legal provision against anybody anywhere in the nation. And so the, the, the nomenclature, the term nationwide injunction is a little bit misleading because everyone agrees that for the particular plaintiffs in a case, it would generally be appropriate for the court to say, you government are not allowed to violate this plaintiff's rights. You are not allowed to enforce this challenge legal provision against this plaintiff anywhere in the nation. And so in that sense, right, a nationwide injunction is generally unremarkable and, and not, not really subject to debate. The issue is, can the court go further and say, and by the way, you're also not allowed to enforce this legal provision against anybody else anywhere in the country, even if they don't live in your jurisdiction, even if they live in other circuits, even if you wouldn't be able to exercise personal jurisdiction over them and their claims would otherwise be subject to the law of, of other circuits, can a court simply pro completely prohibit or enjoin the government from enforcing a challenge legal provision against anybody anywhere? That's, that's the, that is the, at the heart of the debate over what, what we call nationwide injunctions. Yeah. And in your paper, you you provide a kind of taxonomy of the different kind of categories of kinds of actions or kind of relationships between parties and procedural stances that we seem to have lumped together under the headline or the, under the banner nationwide injunctions and explain why they all present really different um policy questions which demand kind of different policy responses. I, I thought that was really clever and, and interesting. And I was wondering if you could spend a minute talking about sort of how you break out those different kind of classes of actions and why you think we should think about them differently. Sure. So as, as, I, as I had said, and then that really is or one of the main contributions the paper is seeking is seeking to make, the notion that Although we colloquially and somewhat loosely use this term nationwide injunction, it is a they, not an it, that, this, that, that there are actually five different types of court orders that have been called nationwide injunctions, that reasonably could be called nationwide injunctions, 
And this broad category of nationwide injunction actually introduces more confusion and more uncertainty and muddies the doctrinal analysis that it would actually be a lot easier and clearer if rather than thinking about things at this general level, we actually break out these five particular categories of court orders because each one does raise very, very different constitutional concerns, different concerns under the rules of civil procedure, under under uh, questions of fairness, questions of policy. And so it, it, it actually is erroneous to apply the same analysis to the to these five different categories. So very, very briefly running through them, <laughs> the first category I refer to as a nationwide plaintiff-oriented injunction, which, as its name suggests, is an injunction that is tailored to enforcing the rights of the particular plaintiff or plaintiffs before the court. And this is right in individual plaintiffs in a non-class case. And a plaintiff-oriented injunction, precisely because it's tailored to enforcing the plaintiff's rights, doesn't raise concerns. That That is consistent with traditional principles of equity. It is consistent with uh, the limits of Article 3. And to say that such injunctions have nationwide scope, again, is wholly consistent with, with traditional equitable principles. The fact that the, the government is prohibited from violating the plaintiff's rights, regardless of where in the country geographically that violation would occur, the party's rights have already been settled. The, the, the court's judgment is binding on both parties as a matter of race judicata, even, even in other jurisdictions. And so nationwide plaintiff-oriented injunctions don't really raise any concerns. The second type of quote-unquote nationwide injunction I call a nationwide plaintiff class injunction. And this is a case where a court has certified a nationwide class of all similarly situated right holders under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23B2. Now, in this case, a court can grant class-wide relief, right, under general equitable principles as well as Article 3. The court has the power to grant relief to all the plaintiffs before it. And so if you have a nationwide class, then yes, a nationwide injunction enforcing the rights of all of those class members would be the appropriate remedy. With regard to nationwide plaintiff class injunctions, my main suggestion is that the issue isn't so much the scope of the relief or the scope of the injunction, but rather the scope of the underlying class, that the mm. main issue isn't should the court issue a class-wide injunction, but rather should the court be certifying a nationwide class? Even though the Supreme Court, in a case called Califano versus Yamasaki, approved the use of nationwide classes, subsequent Supreme Court rulings have called the reasoning of that case into question, and allowing single district courts to certify nationwide classes Pre prevents, precludes the type of relitigation of important constitutional issues that the federal judicial system, going back to the Everts Act of 1891, was deliberately structured to facilitate the notion that in a decentralized hierarchical judicial system, a single judge's rulings should not have the force of law across the entire nation particularly when you're talking about a lower district court as opposed to U U.S. Supreme Court rulings. So with plaintiff classes, my main argument is, yes, class-wide relief is appropriate, 
but the scope of the class should be limited to district-wide or circuit-wide classes rather than nationwide classes in these types of public law or constitutional cases. The third type of order that acts as a nationwide injunction is what I refer to as a nationwide associational injunction, which you can think of as, a, as an informal class action. And this is where an entity goes to court ostensibly on behalf of its members and says, you know, we are asserting associational standing to enforce our members' rights, and so we're seeking an injunction completely prohibiting the government from enforcing this law against anyone anywhere. And so I suggest that associational standing cannot be used to circumvent the restrictions on the proper scope of injunctive relief. And so in associational cases, the court is required to tailor relief to the members whose rights the entity is asserting and can't simply say, well, because this is an entity, we're as the plaintiff, we're just going to completely enjoin enforcement of the challenge legal provision altogether. The fourth type of, of order, and really the one that's at the heart of most legal disputes over, over this issue, is what I refer to as a nationwide defendant-oriented injunction, right? Earlier, I, I talked about plaintiff-oriented injunctions, which are tailored to enforcing the rights of the plaintiffs before the court. Defendant-oriented injunctions, in contrast, aren't about the particular plaintiffs. Rather, they say, you government defendant, you government official, you government agency are hereby prohibited from enforcing this challenged legal provision against anyone anywhere in the nation. And so most of the time when we talk about the debate over nationwide injunctions, we're really talking about what I refer to as defendant-oriented injunctions. They're not about enforcing the rights of the plaintiffs before the court. It's not a class action case where you have all the right holders as a class before the court, but rather the main focus is on the defendant and the defendant's activities and the notion that because the law, because the court has struck down the statute or has determined that the statute is facially unconstitutional or the executive order is facially unconstitutional, therefore, it must completely prohibit the defendant from enforcing that provision against anyone anywhere. And one of the, you know, one of the main points of the article is building on some of my own uh, prior scholarship, pointing out all the various reasons, you know, which I'm happy to talk about, why mm. these defendant-oriented injunctions are improper. And then the final type of injunction, which is very, very rare, is what I refer to as a nationwide defendant class injunction, where in the context of a single lawsuit, a litigant attempts to get relief effective against potential uh, claimants or right holders throughout the nation. The, the main theoretical use of this would be if you had a federal statute that created a private right of action but did not vest enforcement responsibility in a federal agency. The question would come up, particularly if the law provided for punitive damages, treble damages, attorney's fees, injunctive relief. How could an entity seek pre-enforcement review of the constitutionality of a law, of a federal law that just creates a private right of action? If you don't have an enforcing official to sue, to, to seek an injunction or declaratory judgment, you would have to sue a, a potential plaintiff. You would, 
Even if you won in a lawsuit like that, though, such a ruling would not have stare decisis effect even within the same district. It wouldn't preclude relitigation by other entities. And so this is really more of a conceptual or a theoretical idea for how potentially a constitutional challenge to a, to, to a law creating a private right of action could be created. The closest analogy we actually see to this in real life is a case coming out of a Texas federal court where a federal court struck down the Department of Labor's overtime regulation. A completely unrelated plaintiff in a completely different court in New Jersey filed a lawsuit under that regulation, and the Texas court held that plaintiff in contempt, saying that because it struck down the because it struck down the regulation, even though the New Jersey plaintiff had nothing to do with that lawsuit, it was nevertheless violating the 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 court's injunction. So, like I said, this is certainly the 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 rarest, the most theoretically. Uh, complex and unsettled. It, 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 I, I often analogize it to the the box four and the Calabrese and Melamid Cathedral model, mm. and you know it, it, it's certainly one that I that 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 I think bears the most development in in, in future scholarship. Right. So it's it, it struck me that the, the defendant oriented um, injunctive uh, actions were sort of in some respects, like the core of the argument in the paper. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the problems with the defendant-oriented injunctive actions and then relate them to the defendant-class-oriented injunctive actions. And sort of talk a little bit about your thoughts about sort of why people want to bring these actions in the first place and how um, how they could be structured in a way that's more consistent with sort of broader policy goals. Sure. So the the main point of a defendant-oriented injunction, as, as we talked about before, is that rather than enforcing the rights of the particular plaintiff before the court, the, the court is saying, you government defendant cannot enforce this provision against anyone anywhere. And so I suggest in the piece that this raises a minimum of, of you know, five different concerns. Most basically, we have Article Three restrictions. A plaintiff generally only has standing to assert its own rights. And part of the standing analysis is the plaintiff has to show that the relief that it is seeking will redress the harm to itself, the harm that that particular plaintiff has suffered. And so with a with a defendant-oriented injunction, the court isn't trying to redress the harm to that plaintiff. The court is trying to redress or prevent harms to third-party non-litigants not before the court, whose rights the plaintiffs don't have standing to seek, and so their claims are outside the scope of the case or controversy before the court. So just as the plaintiffs don't have standing to seek to enforce the rights of third parties, it's outside the scope of the court's Article Three power to issue an injunction unnecessarily tailored to enforcing those third parties' rights. Now, there will be some situations that involve what I refer to as, or more borrowing from the ALI, the American Law Institute actually originated this terminology, that that 
involve what, what, what the piece refers to as indivisible rights, where it is literally impossible to enforce just one plaintiff's rights without enforcing the rights of third parties. And so gerrymandering is the perfect example of that. If an individual plaintiff brings a gerrymandering case and wins, that plaintiff cannot have their own legislative districts, right? By definition, they can't have one set of congressmen or one set of representatives just for them and a different oh come on mike mike michael what do you have against rotten boroughs <laughs> well if you strike them down you can't strike them down for just one plaintiff that's exactly the point that if you win in a gerrymandering case that is the quintessential example of an indivisible right where the if the court has to redraw the district it must redraw the district for everyone there it can't redraw it just for that just for that one person and so there are some rare cases that involve indivisible rights where in order to enforce the rights of the plaintiff, you're necessarily going to have to enforce enforce uh, other people's rights. I think there's a very strong argument that desegregation cases are like that, that if you, if you have a right to a desegregated school district, it is literally impossible for that right to be afforded just to you, that desegregation necessarily requires the, the rights of third-party non-litigants to be enforced. It required, there's no such thing as integrating just one person. You necessarily have to remove racial barriers in order to enforce the rights of that particular plaintiff. So there are some cases with indivisible rights where enforcing the plaintiff's rights will look like a defendant-oriented injunction, but in fact, the court is just doing what is necessary to enforce that plaintiff's rights. Most cases, though, involve divisible rights. They involve situations where it actually is possible to enforce the rights of the particular plaintiffs before the court without going further and enforcing everyone else's rights. And Article 3 says the only relief the plaintiffs have standing to ask for is the protection of their own rights. And therefore, the only relief the court has jurisdiction to grant is tailored to enforcing those particular plaintiffs' rights. So you have the Article 3, the constitutional objection to, to nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions. There's also more, deba more debatably due process concerns with the notion of a court adjudicating and enforcing the rights of third-party non-litigants who haven't received any notice of the case, who haven't received an opportunity to be heard in the case, who might not even be subject to that court's personal jurisdiction. There are arguably due process concerns with the court reaching out and purporting to enforce the rights of such third parties when, as the court might not even be able to extend its power to them, and they certainly don't even have any idea that the case is going on. Mm. There's fairness concerns, or what, what, what I refer to as asymmetry concerns. If courts are allowed to grant nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions, that means if a single plaintiff wins a single lawsuit against the government, the government can be completely prohibited from enforcing the challenge provision against anyone anywhere. On the other hand, if the government wins that lawsuit and, the, and, the, and a court holds that the law is, is valid, is constitutional, that win does not preclude any other right holder from bringing exactly the same lawsuit and potentially even within the very same circuit since district court rulings aren't subject to, to stare decisis in, mo in most jurisdictions. So, the, so 
one of the the fairness issues about nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions is that a favorable ruling for any plaintiff anywhere redounds to the benefit of all plaintiffs, whereas an unfavorable ruling has no effect on the rights of other plaintiffs, does not preclude, does not limit any relitigation by other plaintiffs. And so the government literally has to win every single case everywhere against everyone or else it runs the risk of completely having a statute invalidated against anyone. And so though that type of asymmetry, the asymmetrical stakes, the need to, to force is the government to effectively run the board is another problem of, of nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions. A fourth concern arises from the rules of civil procedure, the notion that we already have a way, we already have a procedural mechanism for bringing third-party non-litigants before the court, right? Congress specifically amended the rules of civil procedure in the late 1960s in order to facilitate civil rights litigation, no less, to allow what's called Rule 23B2 class actions, which are class actions in which the parties seek injunctive relief. And so for a court to grant effectively class-wide relief in a non-class case, without going through class certification procedures, without going through class uh, identification procedure, or class rather class definition procedures, violates Rule 23. If you have an express procedural mechanism for litigating cases on a class-wide basis, courts cannot grant class-wide relief outside of that context. And then finally, the, 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 the last main concern about nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions traces back to what I was talking about earlier about the structure of the federal judicial system. The federal judiciary was deliberately structured in a hierarchical, decentralized manner where particularly trial-level courts, federal district courts, have limited powers. They have limited geographic jurisdictions. Even circuit courts, their ruling courts of appeal, their rulings only have the force of law binding stare decisis effect in limited geographic jurisdictions. Going back to the early 1900s, the Supreme Court has reaffirmed that one circuit's rulings are not binding on other circuits. The Supreme Court, in a case called United States versus Mendoza, held that the government is not subject, and this is a mouthful, to offensive non-mutual collateral estoppel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which, which is just a fancy way of saying just because the government loses an issue in one case doesn't prevent it from relitigating that same issue against different people in other cases, right? So simply because one court holds that a legal provision is invalid, the Mendoza court held, the government can relitigate that exact same issue in a different court against different parties. The government is not collaterally stopped by that earlier ruling. It is not precluded by that earlier ruling from relitigating the issue in a different court. And, the, and Mendoza went on to explain, we don't want to allow a single district judge to effectively bind the government throughout the entire nation to force issues to be appealed on, particularly if the ruling gets affirmed by the Court of Appeals, to effectively force emergency appeals to the Supreme Court to prevent the government from 
determining whether a case presents an important constitutional issue or an important legal issue in an appropriate factual context, in a factual context that will best facilitate resolution as opposed to extreme facts or complicated facts or unusual facts or ones that aren't going to generate a good or clear or effective legal ruling. Mendoza emphasized, we want circuit splits. The Supreme Court uses circuit splits as a proxy for determining what issues to adjudicate. And circuit splits allow the court to see the practical consequences of different legal rulings, the effects different approaches to the law have on potentially other bodies of law. And so allowing for circuit splits creates, to, to, you know, to borrow a phrase from the federalism context, laboratories, if you will, where the court can see the actual effects of, of, of different approaches to the law. If you allow a single district court ruling to completely invalidate a law or a regulation across the entire country, including in places where and for right holders on whom that court's rulings don't even have the force of law, don't even have stare decisis effect, you are taking away from the structure of the judicial system. You are taking away from that decentralized hierarchical nature and turning these rulings into nationwide emergencies, where through stays and emergency appeals, you have 300 million people's rights being flicked on and off as a, like a light switch, where a district court enters a nationwide injunction, then the Court of Appeals stays it, but the en banc court vacates it, then the Supreme Court stays it. And all of these cutting-edge constitutional issues are being litigated, sometimes in the matter of days, under, under what William Bode refers to as the court's shadow docket. This is not how constitutional adjudication, first of all, this does not facilitate good constitutional adjudication. It does not facilitate accurate constitutional adjudication. And it takes already contentious issues, raises the stakes to national significance as opposed to regional significance. And you have the existence or not of rights, but sometimes on a day-by-day basis, being flicked on and off, which which is simply not how the federal judicial system is is supposed to be operating. Yeah, yeah. It, it, in and in your in your paper, you you if I'm reading it correctly, you kind of suggest that there ought to be a presumption of some kind that in these kinds of injunctive actions, that class certification ought to be part of the process of putting the litigation together. And then in addition, you talk about this idea of creating kind of a concept of a kind of limited stereotysis for district courts. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how those two proposals or ideas work together. Sure. So the main point of most modern public law litigation from the from the perspective of particular plaintiffs, and, and especially here, I'm thinking of litigation that is either brought in the name of or that, that is facilitated by institutional plaintiffs, right? Often it isn't so much about enforcing the rights of particular litigants, but rather they're trying to either generate precedents that will have nationwide effect, or they're trying to enforce the rights of everyone. And so what's really at stake here in part is a conflict between two different models of the federal court system, right? The, the question of 
what is the main role of the federal courts? Is it to play a dispute resolution function where its main focus should be on enforcing the rights of particular parties? Or instead, does it play more of a law declaration function where its main point is acting as a check on Congress and overseeing the states, in which case we we, we, we perhaps would be less than precise about ensuring that, that, that it respects particular limits. And we would want it to be more aggressive in issuing sweeping orders and acting as, 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 as something of a roving commission to prevent constitutional violations from occurring. So given that at least part of the intent of a lot of public law litigation is to benefit many people or to protect the rights of many people at once, Part of the part of the point of, 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 of my paper and this taxonomy is to say injunctions aren't the only way to do it, that courts have other weapons in their arsenal that precisely in light of the numerous concerns that nationwide defendant oriented injunctions raise, we don't have to twist and violate Article 3 and the rules of procedure and these fairness considerations and the structure of the judicial system, we can look to other tools in the court's arsenal. So a one possible solution, which is I don't think is the best solution, but is certainly better than the status quo, one possible solution is district-wide or circuit-wide classes under Rule 23b2. And so that is at least something of a compromise where the geographic scope of the court's ruling and the people to whom the court's ruling applies extends beyond just a handful of individual plaintiffs. But conversely, a single district court ruling is not affecting the rights of all right holders throughout the nation. So you have some relitigation, you allow for some percolation of, 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 of issues throughout the system, you allow for circuit splits, you don't require the first case at the circuit level to be appealed immediately to the Supreme Court on, on an emergency basis. But yet also, you don't have the overwhelmingly duplicative litigation specter of every single right holder in the country purporting of filing their own lawsuit, which of course is unrealistic anyway. I mean, most one of the main concerns that that advocates of, of nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions point out is the fact that right, many, many indigents, even just many middle-class Americans don't have the money to, to go to court and enforce all of their rights. And so they have to rely on other litigants. They have to rely on other litigation to have their rights vindicated. And so one way of doing this is through circuit-wide or district-wide class actions under Rule 23b2. I suggest that there are some problems with, with these class actions. And so while they are certainly an improvement over the status quo, because there are some, some concerns that, that they raise, both under Article Three, as well as in terms of simply the, the 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 practical aspects of certifying them, an even better solution is to rely on stare decisis as a way of giving district court rulings effect beyond the immediate litigants to the case. There is no reason why we couldn't afford district court rulings stare decisis effect either within the same judicial district or potentially even on a circuit-wide basis. So a district court ruling within a circuit could potentially even be binding on other district courts within that same circuit. 
if district court rulings were afforded stare decisis effect, it would greatly reduce the need for plaintiffs to seek to use other methods like injunctions, like class certification, to try to enforce the rights of third-party non-litigants, because if the court definitively settles the law on a particular issue, then a, at least within that particular geographic area, the ish matter is settled just as much as a Supreme Court ruling would settle the law on that issue across the entire nation. Mm. So using stare decisis, I, I ultimately suggest, is an overlooked way of alleviating many of the problems that nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions create while striking a balance between recognizing the decentralized hierarchical nature of the judicial system, recognizing the Article Three limits on what plaintiffs are allowed to seek, while also having some mechanism through which third parties can benefit from favorable court rulings, some mechanism that avoids the need to have every single right holder go to court to try to enforce their own rights unless and until a circuit court or eventually the Supreme Court has the chance to rule on an issue. Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much. It's It's been a real pleasure talking to you about your paper. And I must say, I learned an awful lot about uh, how injunctive release, relief works in these contexts, both from reading your paper and from talking to you. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have a chance to, to get to talk about it. <laughs> Ride so late in a night so wild. A father is riding with his child. He clasps the boy close in his arm. He holds him tightly. He keeps him warm. My son, you are trembling. What do you fear? Look, father, the Earl King, he's coming near with his crown and his shroud. Yes, that is he. My son, it's only the mist you see. Oh, lovely child, oh, come with me. Such games we'll play, so glad we'll be. Such flowers to pick, such sights to behold. My mother will make you clothes of gold. Oh, father, my father, did you not hear the Earl King whispering in my ear? Lie still, my child, lie quietly. It's only the wind in the leaves of the tree. Dear boy, if you will come away... My daughters will wait on you every day. They'll give you the prettiest presents to keep. They'll dance when you wake, and they'll sing you asleep. My father, my father, do you not see the Earl King's pale daughters waiting for me? My son, my son, I see what you say. The willow is waving its branches of grey. I love you. So come without fear or remorse, and if you're not willing, I'll take you by force. My father, my father, tighten your hold. The Earl King has caught me. His fingers are cold. The father shudders. He spurs on his steed. He carries the child with desperate speed. He reaches the courtyard, dread. There, in his arms, the boy lies dead.
november night.